You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome to Season 2 of Turning to the Mystics, where we're turning to the 16th century Christian mystic, St. Teresa of Avila. Last week, Jim took us to the end of her book, The Interior Castle, with a beautiful reflection on Mansion 7. And next week, I'll be joining Jim for a dialogue about Mansion 6 and 7. But today we have a special guest with us, Father Richard Raw. Jim and I have been looking forward to this discussion with him, and so let's get started. Richard, thank you so much for joining Jim and I on our Turning to the Mystics podcast. It's really exciting to have you here. Well, it's sincerely my privilege to be with you too. I get to be with you in the school, but now in a podcast. This is great. Thank you. <laughs> We've been really looking forward to it. Um, so today we're talking about Teresa of Avila, and so Richard, I just wondered where and when you were first introduced to Teresa. You know, like uh, most young religious, I think I heard you say this once, Jim, I, I opened her, I think when I was in college at Dunscotus, and um it just seemed like gobbledygook. I, I mean, I'm <laughs> 19 years, 20 years old, I guess. I just had no real inner experience. This was still before Vatican II, where Catholicism was, was uh, largely externalized religion. So uh, I conveniently shelved her and only came back in later years. Do, do you remember what you read first? Was it? Were you asked to read all of her, the, no. uh, the book of my life? or I think it was the Vita, yeah, the life, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I might have ventured into the interior castle, but I can't say for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I would have placed myself in the fifth mansion. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, was that where you were placing yourself at about the same age? Uh, no, I told Myrna, well, for, for me, the background was, I was about the same age as Richard. I was Yeah, 18, we were the same. And I was at the monastery, and Thomas Merton was novice master. And uh, so under his guidance, um, St. John the Cross is actually the first mystic that I read. Oh. Had a very deep effect on me, and he guided me in that. It was great. So then I read Teresa. And um, when I read Teresa... When I came in to see him for direction, um, I had my copy of the Interior Castle with me. And I told him, 18 years old, I said, I'm reading the Interior Castle. And I said, the way I see it, I'm in the fourth mansion. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but, but I said, if you think I'm only in the first, be honest with me, I can handle it. That's what I told him. <laughs> and, and he said to me, he said, it's none of your damn business what mansion you're in. Oh, wow. Wow. He said, the spiritual life should free <laughs> us up from a preoccupation with ourself. It just mm-hmm. becomes another way of being preoccupied with ourselves. <laughs> he said, but understood in the right way, it's extremely helpful. The, the Teresa is a, is, a, is a trustworthy, contemplative guide uh, in the Christian tradition. And so when I started reading her, I, I got into her, I read her, but it never really... She never really got to me the way John the Cross did or Eckhart. Oh. But then years later, it was just maybe 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I don't know when it was, through the invitation of Carolyn Mace, I was given an invitation to go to Avila and um, talk on John of the Cross at Avila with Carolyn Mace in Avila. In preparation for that, I read her again later, and I was just struck by how beautiful her teachings were. It just is really... And then I did the online course with the CAC on Teresa. So she's near and dear to me. It's just really, she's so profound and down to earth and beautiful. And so that's my history with her. I was curious with you, when you did pick her up later, like older and wiser, 
Do you recall what struck you at that later reading when you read her that you didn't see earlier? First of all, I'm going to say her readability, that uh, what I once thought was so abstruse and, and gobbledygook was now striking home again and again. I, 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 whether I was correctly understanding her, I don't know. And her concrete images, like, uh, you know, the, the crystal, the castle, the butterfly, the lizards, uh, they all just became, oh, yes. I had a, a bit of identification, inner identification. Yeah. Mm. When was that, Richard? Do you remember when you read her again? Uh, it would have been my early years out here in New Mexico, uh, late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. Mm. When you were kind of moving towards... Uh, identifying the role of contemplation to yes. support action. Yes, and uh, and realizing I had a lot more to learn if I was going to present myself as a teacher. Mm. And um, mm. I had to go to the best in the field, and she was there. I, I'm curious, because, um, Richard, you're a Franciscan, and Jim was a Cistercian, and Teresa was a Carmelite. Can, can you just describe how all, all these linea different lineages work and why <laughs> you would be reading Teresa when you were studying the Franciscan yeah. lineage? It's probably why I was able to put her off so long because, believe it or not, there has been a kind of tribalism within the religious orders where you read and you studied your own uh, group. Uh, and it was actually in the Vita when uh, Teresa said that she hated mental prayer, but it was the discovery of Francisco de Asuna, one of us, that uh, in the third spiritual alphabet, that opened her up. And, oh, my, we had something to teach <laughs> Teresa. <laughs> so suddenly I became interested in her. Uh, yeah. And, and knowing that Francisco de Osuna was sort of an outlier, even in Franciscanism, most friars have never heard of her, Be, uh, him, excuse me, never heard of him because we had lost the prayer of quiet as we mostly accepted the noisy prayer of chanting psalms. Mm. And... Uh, I, and when I met Carmelite friends, and forgive me if this is an incorrect judgment, but it, it seemed like most of them didn't relate to her and John of the Cross either. <laughs> because, you know, the Council of Trent moved all of us to a rather uniform spirituality. I'm sure even to a good degree the Cistercian. Uh, it was only after Vatican II that we were all not just given permission, but told to go back to our founders and our individual charisms. Hmm. Yeah. Jim, do you think uh, it was only because of Thomas Merton you were introduced to mystics like Teresa, or was yeah, that standard I, in your... I think that Merton, in this kind of Benedictine monastic Cistercian tradition, he was, of course, very immersed in that Bernard de Clairvaux and the Cistercian school. But he was so good at kind of recognizing contemplative mystical dimensions of Christ consciousness throughout the church. You know, yes. he saw the richness of the pluralism yes. of that. And so it was very natural for him to go wherever he saw that. You know, so he was very much at home with her and with the Car with the Carmelite tradition because they were they resonated with each other you know and this affinity of lineages same way with the, then Eckhart in, in England the German tradition and the Beguines and so he was very good that way of a very broad based seeing the interconnectedness of these traditions and then going back to the power the power of these classical texts you know the lineage of mystical consciousness in the church, and he felt that 
in a way, the scandal of the church is it wasn't teaching its own mystical lineage. And the, this is what CAC is so good about, I think, too, this, this kind of regrounding ourselves in this original orthodoxy, this primal thing going all the way back to Jesus spending whole nights alone in prayer. And how do we reground ourselves in the timeless richness of that and then see the beauty of these different schools of spirituality and how they resonate with each other? And so that's what I think it was. I think it was his openness. And then he even extended it then beyond Christianity. So Abraham, Joshua, Heschel, and Martin Buber, and Thich Nhat Hanh, and the Dalai Lama, and the Sufi, you know, he saw this communal, mystical, contemplative consciousness in the human spirit throughout the whole world. And so I was, I was very graced that way by his inclusiveness. And then at the same time being true to his own lineage, you know, he was out of his Cistercian school, like a grounding place, open to all of them. And that was my sense of it. Mm. Yeah, he had an eye, a natural eye, for the perennial tradition, the universal truth. He did. And he knew who was carrying it forward and who was expressing it in their own genre. Yeah. There, there, there's a beautiful little book called Signs of Peace, and the subtitle is Thomas Merton's Dialogue with his uh, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, and Protestant friends. Wow, I've never seen these, that. And you see these lovely letters that they wrote back and forth, which they said, I'd like to dialogue with you about our common ground. And you also see it in the volume of his posthumously published journals, on the, the volume on the hidden ground of love. You also see these, these letters in, to these traditions. And, and I think CAC has that spirit about it. Mm -hmm. Do I mean that kind of... Because we're taking this, and then we're saying, how can we who live in the midst of the world realize we're called to this too? You don't need to be a cloistered nun or a cloistered monk or a Franciscan wearing Franciscan. You know, these are lineages that are open to the mystical dimensions of the Christian life. And I think that's why people are so hungry to hear this. And I think that's what we offer people. Yeah. Richard, you have done uh, very much along the lines of what Jim was describing about Thomas Merton with the CAC expanded. Yeah. The lineages and um, where where were you inspired to do that? How did that come about? Well, thank you for asking me because it makes me try to figure it out. How did that come? I mean, it certainly came little by little, but I know it was always in reading such folks as we now call the mystics that I found resonance with uh, the Christianity that made sense to me. But that was a growing realization, starting in the minor seminary, when I read um, Waters of Silo and Sign of Jonah. In high school, uh, how did I already know? I, I Maybe I've said this before. I can even see the place in the library where I'm taking Merton's book off the shelf. Oh, geez. Uh, and, of course, we're talking about 1958, 59, when he was barely known. But uh, being exposed to a big mind that early, I think, gave me a doorway into it so I knew what to look for. Mm. Uh, then when I went to college, I had a huge uh, spiritual library there that I, I took advantage of for four years. So it was mostly self-education. Wow. Just a curiosity. Curiosity, yeah. Yeah. That's to, to, was it to find what, what you felt when you read Merton's book? Was that like a... The, the experience you had in that, was that guiding you? Well, I think it was more to try to validate those few youthful spiritual experiences I had. Uh, were those real? Were those fanciful delusions? Uh, what was it I was inside of? 
Now we'd call it unitive consciousness. Mm. Uh, and I knew it made me both uh, e- eager to grow as a Catholic Christian at that time, and yet utterly disappointed with it, because that is now what they were teaching us. Uh, it only opened up around 65 after Vatican II, where we could read texts other than papal encyclicals and <laughs> so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for those listening that are a little newer to this sense of a Christian mystic, how how would you describe that, Richard? And how would I describe a Christian what, mystic? A Christian mystic, yeah. And you how know, they help us? I think what attracted me, and I'm just remembering this right now. It might not be totally the picture. Um, was the the uh, spiritual wedding erotic bridegroom language? And it was just so surprising to me. We had so uh, suppressed that language uh, as beneath us. And here, uh, uh, I mean, in the, the mystics were the people who used it with great excitement, like Teresa herself. Which castle is it, Jim, where she's into the spiritual marriage? Fifth? Yeah. It, it, well, what she sees is starting in the sixth. Six. She speaks about betrothal or being engaged. Betrothal, to God. Yeah, yeah. And mystical, mar- the seventh mansion is you're married to God. Yes. yes. Nuptial love is her primary uh-huh. metaphor for union. Yeah. It was very satisfying to me. But uh, always this disappointment why aren't other people excited about this or mm. even talking about this? Um, even uh, friars, teachers that I admired on other levels and were good and holy men, but the language of the mystics was was not often preached. It really wasn't. Mm. It was more the language of church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's it's been quite an isolated journey to, towards the Christian mystics. It really has. I, I'm sorry to say it, but that's why I did my early retreats down at Gethsemane, which was only a two-hour drive. Uh, it was the Benedictine tradition when it seemed to me to more often hold it. I came to the Carmelites later as they were rediscovering Teresa and John of the Cross. Because the Carmelites I met, and that's the only way I can say it, were just like me. They had largely become Roman Catholic priests. Uh, And um, didn't know their own tradition. Forgive me, any good Carmelites, because I know you're different now. But in the early years, you... uh, we were all uniform. Mm. We were trained to be priests, not to be Franciscans, Carmelites, even Cistercians. And, and certainly not to be mystics. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> Jim, do you have a reflection on that? Well, several things. Uh, one, I'm struck by Richard uh, seeing the place in high school where he opened first read. Really? That's true. And I was... Um, same with me. I was in the ninth grade. All this for me, all this trauma was going on, and in a ninth grade religion class, the instructor mentioned monasteries. I'd never heard of monasteries before, and he mentioned Thomas Merton. <coughs> and I went up to the school library, and they had the sign of Jonah there. It's the only one that was in the sign library. of Jonah too. And oh. I opened it up, and I shared this on the when we were doing Merton in the podcast on the very first page. He says, as for me, I have but one desire, the desire for solitude, to be lost in the secret of God's face. And all of it, I stood there and I realized at 14 years old, I didn't know what it meant, but something in me did. Well, yeah. He said, me too. Like there was such a purity to wow. it that got to me. And I read him through the four years. So it's very interesting that, and I also feel, well, we, it's hard to know exactly where it began. Like there's moments like that. Because I think there's a grace disposition towards it. So it feels so natural to resonate with this. 
Do I mean to be drawn to a monastery or to sit in silence? There's a certain predisposition sometimes where we kind of ease into the naturalness of it for us. And But how do we make it grow? And uh, another thought I had was, I was giving a, a contemplative retreat at this church in Cleveland, Episcopal Church, St. Paul's Episcopal Church, and a good priest friend of mine, Father Don Cousins. Oh, yes. Sexuality in the priest. Wonderful man, wonderful. Yeah, great guy. And uh, we were having dinner after the retreat, and I was teaching Thomas Merton or John of the Cross or something, and he said, he said, do you think you're preaching to the choir you know, when you teach this mystical stuff? And I said, I hope so. If by the choir, you mean people who feel drawn to this, because what they tell me, why don't I hear this at church? That is, you know, this is so beautiful. How come I don't hear this when I go to church? See? And so why, you know, people are kind of hungry to bear witness to this mystical and how the mystical spills over into social justice. It spills over into the corporal works of mercy. It spills over. And so I, I just think there's a lot of, so I think when our friendship began years ago, there were these affinities between us, and uh, it brought us right up to this moment where we're talking right now. It's so yeah. strange how God leads people. Yeah. I must have heard that 200 times. Why don't we hear this in church? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, as you know, the post-Reformation Catholic Church largely, not largely, but almost entirely, centered around the seven sacraments and a rather instrumental understanding of them. And we assumed we were at a high level because we had received, in a usually objective manner, the seven sacraments. Any talk of an inner dialogue, like Teresa talks of so readily, in the soul and where, where something's going on between us and God, that was rare. And it wasn't picked up in the Reformed Church either, Richard. The, no, I'm afraid not, no. Because yeah. they thought of it as Catholic. Mm. And if they only knew it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> that most Catholics didn't have it. So, <laughs> Such a shame, such a shame, really. Well, the, way I, the way I see it, too, and you, I got this from you, you said this, I thought it was so true, is that in a way, the Protestant Reformation was formed not just from a badly needed reform of the Roman tradition. Right. But it was also formed just as much by the Enlightenment on reason. So when Luther opened the Bible... He was reading it outside of the liturgical, sacramental, mystic, contemplative, uh, aesthetic, philosophical ethos of the Greek fathers and the Latin fathers. And he read it, you read the text like a fact, like proof text. And you can flip back and forth and like apologetics. And then the Roman church followed suit, the Counter-Reformation. They were off and running. And in the process, they both left behind these mystical, intimate, contemplative foundation, like the lifeblood, you know, of this, uh, the interior life. And so renewal is constantly circling back around to gather that up again. And that's one of the ways I've seen that. When you said that some years ago to me, I thought that rang so true to me. Yeah. I love that term, lifeblood. That's, and that's what I'm, I'm hearing from you both in the way... Um, the, the mystics have um, reinforced like what what was coming up in your own being like a li the, the lifeblood that you felt cursing through your own veins was picked up by the mystics and kind of helped you move forward um, so Richard has uh, Teresa influenced your teaching these days like how, what what's her influence been on? how you teach or how you think about growth and transformation or contemplation and action? On, on many levels. Uh, as you know, I'm fascinated by any idea of staging or growth, 
Otherwise, we get into this instrumental, born-again, one-time experience. And at a very deep level, her very use of the word mansions, moradas huh, in Spanish, um, was, was my kind of language in, as I began to give retreats. And then there was a, a very dark time in my life when I had been falsely accused of something. And I, I had nothing except trust that God would reveal the truth. But I had no way to defend myself. And that's when I reread the interior castle and every page came to life for me. And I want to mention that because is that not true for so many of these people we read? Where, um, And that's why I talk about things of great love and great suffering so much. You know, it was a time of immense darkness and suffering where I was ready for it all to be over and said, okay, God, I'm in your hands. And then I uh, reread Trees and I have this little bird, little butterfly leading me. <laughs> and it was just exactly what I was able to believe, what I was able to trust in. Uh, now, to be honest, uh, I still don't speak of that as openly as I should. I do it with some trepidation even here, even though I know you understand. But um, I'm going to use the word fanciful. I've even talked to nuns and and contemplatives, <laughs> formally speaking, who find this language fanciful. Uh, and, and I think it's, if there's no inner experience to hang your hook on, if you've lived your whole life just abiding by the laws of the monastery, uh, I don't think... You, you know this is real. Um, in fact, I'm sure you don't. <laughs> it's just distant idealism that nobody ever achieves. Richard, I'm curious, uh, during that uh, real challenging time, what, what, what caused you to pick up Teresa? What did... I don't remember. I don't remember. Was it just seeing her here on my bookshelf and pulling it out? I wonder if it was because uh, you read Mirabai's version. I wonder if it had just been released or, you know, if, if Mirabai, because of the relationship with Mirabai. But that was an unusual choice. Yes. Given that you hadn't connected to it uh -huh, so yeah. fully when you were young. I can't say. Sorry. I just, it's fascinating the way God works, though, isn't it? That the, the book you would never expect uh, to be the one to support you is the one that enters your hands somehow. It does, yes. No, it probably was Mirabai's translation. It might have been Alison Peer's translation, but it doesn't matter. Mm. She was with me. It was the unexpected yeah, yeah. support that you needed. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. It's interesting when Teresa in this in the sixth mansion, she's, she she talks about this process of what's happening here. She's really this process. How I put it is we're really dying of love. That is, we're dying of everything less than an infinite union with the infinite love of God as the sole basis for our security and identity. And she's what happens in the sixth mansion is this love, this divine love, moves back and forth across every aspect of ego consciousness, kind of uh, untangling us. And one of the things that get untangled, she says, is people misunderstand you and misrepresent you. And also you have confessors who don't understand you. 
and you feel the pain of not being understood, which is really the solitude of God. You know, you learn to depend on, 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 on God. And um, so I think what happens then, when we're in this situation, when you're going through something like that yourself, which is really you're in a traumatized state, really you're beside yourself. And when you open someone like Teresa and you read her, it's, it goes right to your heart. And you know that she's bearing witness to something in you that this thing that you're going through has no power to destroy. You know, there's something that the love of God like qualitatively transcends the circumstance. And it's like a, a beam of light, you know, meaning you just hold on to it for dear life and it helps you get your balance back. Um, that's one of the ways that I see it too, how that happens to people. Her her transference of place is so different, you know, that suddenly it's all localized inside the self, which we would have been warned against was solipsism or individualism, but it ends up being utterly different than that. It allows you to take yourself seriously and the journey toward God and the journey toward uh accepting, loving the self, end up being the same journey. It just amazed me that a, a woman of her time, largely uneducated, right, Jim? What was she? Yeah, formally. Yeah, she wasn't allowed to study theology. Yeah, she, yeah. Women could not, yeah, yeah. Would have such a good psychology. <laughs> yeah. uh, really rather amazing. You know what else you say, too, is, it's, you're so right. It's the it's like the solitary awakening in her heart, but the more deeply you go into it, it opens out upon the boundaryless life of that's God. That's right. That's that's a great paradox. Utter paradox. You Utter. go quietly into the secret touching of your heart, and when you surrender to it, it opens up on this boundaryless love of God that takes yeah. you. It's it's one of the great. It sure things. is. She's so good at that, seeing that. And to think how she's running around Spain opening all these houses in her cart or whatever she traveled in mm -hmm. and maintaining such a depth of interior dialogue. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's just hard to imagine. Mm -hmm. Yet it's evident, she, evident. Yeah. She's such a, uh, an amazing role model of uh, Action and contemplation. Oh, what, what? She really is. Yeah. And that final statement of at the end of the seventh mansion, how can I be helpful? Is that, that right? Yeah. yeah. Showing up, huh? Yeah. She, yeah. she says, for, for such a person who's come to this unitive state, there's only one question, love, how can I be helpful? I have to it, go back and it, look it, for that. See, because how can I be here with all these ordinary people that God's in love with, like Jesus walking the streets. Yes. Know, fallen. God so loved the world that he sent his only. And it comes back full circle to her own brokenness and ordinariness and union with everybody. She just levels the playing field. It's a lovely In the ending. seventh mansion. Yeah. I'm going to look yeah. it up and right after. The, yeah, a little epilogue when she says, please pray for me. That's how she ends. Keep me in your prayer. Keep wow. this poor sinful woman in your prayers. Something like that. She ends and quietly bows out. And <laughs> beautiful. You know. Well, you just helped me because, you know, I was thinking that the interior castle mirrors Ken Wilber's cleaning up, growing up, waking up. And I, I wasn't sure. She talked about, talked about showing up. But you're telling me she does <laughs> at, yeah. in the sit right on schedule in the sixth <laughs> mansion. Yeah, it's true. And you can also see it in her writing where she's showing up on every paragraph. Oh, yeah. You get the feeling like she's right there. Yeah. Do I mean, yeah. in an unimpositional way, she's just so right out there revealing herself to us so that as a way to help us find our way in, the, in this passage that she's talking about. Like, it's almost like being with her in spiritual direction. You get a feeling what it would be like to be with her, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
what also strikes me about this conversation, Jim, the way you talk about um, the seventh mansion where, where, and you'll please say it better than me, but where God is pulling you forward from the, from the first mansion and you, both your stories about picking up Thomas Merton, could you, could you relate those to that idea? Yes, and then Richard can chime in too. This is okay. This is how I end on the seventh mention. Is what what's what I think is so encouraging to us when we read her, is as we get into the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh. We realize she's talking about states, a divine consciousness that might be beyond anything that we've experienced. We're still encouraged by it because spiritually, in the mystical body, what is given to one of us belongs to all of us and it inspires us to like the celestial state of infinite union on earth. But there's something else I think so important. If you go back to the very beginning of the book, and she says there are some people who don't even know they have a soul. And you ask yourself, could I look back at a time that I didn't know I had one either? And yet God found me there. And so what's so encouraging is this long arc from the seventh mansion is a love that reaches out and touches us in our confusion. And I think that's extremely encouraging. You know, like the holiness where we're interiorly quickened or awakened unexpectedly. We kind of serendipitously start to turn towards it. And then how mysteriously God leads us deeper and deeper. And I think that's very, very encouraging that we can be so at home among the lost because God lives in the hearts of the lost and we're one of them. And we can be present to a lost world in a grounded, loving way. And I, I was just very touched by that circularity of back to the very beginning. She, she even starts out the book this way in her little foreword. She's writing this as a seventh mansion mystic, and she's writing it under obedience. And she has this litany. She said, you know, it's going to be very hard to write this book. She's one, I'm not in the mood to do it. <laughs> Two, I think I said it all already. Three, my head's spinning all the time, and I'm old and sick, and I really don't see how I want. She's a seventh mansion mystic talking about that she doesn't know whether she's up to writing it. But then she has this beautiful sentence, but because obedience has a way of simplifying things. That's a lovely statement. Wow. That once you feel God's calling you to do something, God gives you the strength Clarity. to do what you yes. don't know you have. And right, so every, anyway, she's always has that richness and honesty about her. You know? mm. Yeah, the, the, both the stories you told about picking up Merton's book, um, and it, it's, it's, it's like the, you were in the first mansion, but the seventh mansion was right there yeah. drawing you towards itself. Yeah. And, uh, I, I could really feel that in your stories. Beautiful. Richard, um, part of the, what Jim's been teaching in the, in the um, podcast is, you know, going through each of the mansions and just identifying that, that each mansion is, is equally valuable and mm. it, it doesn't matter where you find yourself. Yes. But, that, but, but uh, learning about them helps you situate yourself. Um, so Jim, do you want to just reflect a little bit on your approach? And yeah, yes, and what she's really saying is, let's say you're a first mansion person, that is, you're someone who's just newly discovering personally that God loves you, you know, and you turn toward it, but you have a divided heart. You have a divided heart. You know, you slide back, you, the reptiles, the habits of the heart that compromise this love. And she says to realize that if you're a first mansion person and you're struggling this way, that's your holiness. And if you died as a first mansion person, you would have died having lived a good life because it's a grace to be a, a faltering beginner who's first discovering God's love. And she's so good how each one, you know, she, what matters is that we sense how God's with us where we are knowing that if we just stay with it and lean in deeper, God will see to it that our own heart will open and open. But we're not trying to figure out how can I get to that seventh mansion like right away, but how can I learn to discover God in the holiness of my first mansion struggles as a gift? See? 
And uh, I, I think that's a big thing with her, as, as part of what her message is to all of us. Richard, is that your sense too? Oh, I love her compassion, her uh, mercy. Again, knowing that inquisitional Spanish Catholicism would not have taught her that. She had to be taught by the Spirit. Uh, the only times I find her at all ineffective or faltering is when she tries to resort to the colloquial Catholic language, like mortal sin, mm. uh, and, and fit it. Uh, and I'm not denying the reality of sin, but it, it's there. It's there that uh, it's sort of dead-ended. It's not invitational anymore. And it's the invitational uh, caring language that I think we still find so attractive. Yes. Yeah. And do you feel, do you feel this way, Richard, that, um, that she uses that language as really the cultural language of the day? But when she speaks of sin, she means it really as the sin of not surrendering to this tender love. You know, the sin isn't understood in that legalistic sense with the Inquisition, but she understood sin to be this, bro you know what I mean, the disparity. Yes, yes. And, but we read it in the colloquial version. We do, we do. And she also does this about women. She'll say, you know, we women. Yeah. You know, we're, we're very moody. <laughs> and, you know, she, she know. Does that. And, and she also says other cultural things like, dear God, please pray for the Lutherans. You know, that they see their life. She says she's, she singles them out like, uh, so you can see every mystic is somehow bound up in their own culture that yeah. they transcend. And we do too. You know, we're kind of bound up in ours. Another thing I find encouraging, she was writing during the Inquisition, which was horrible. And it's encouraging for us about we feel so dismayed about our present political demise, you know, where we are today politically, and where we are in certain aspects of the church too. And how she saw that, she was so clear about how real that was. But it didn't keep her eye, you know, off the treasure of the love that permeates that community. Yes. And uh, that's another beautiful lesson yes. for her, I think. Mm. Richard, how would you recast the, the way she talks about mortal sin? Well, I'm glad Jim said what he did, because uh, I struggle with that a lot going through the text. Uh, it just, for my generation, connotes so much negativity mm. that did not invite you onto the spiritual journey. It just, it was definitive. It was a closed system. It was a, something you did or did not do. So I had to end up translating that almost exactly as Jim said. Mm. Whenever I'm living in a state of non-union, uh, sometimes deliberately so because I'm so self-willed or so driven in my own agenda, whatever it is, uh, that is a sin unto death. And you have to be rescued from it, usually by failure, in my experience. Uh, I, I forget, how does, would either of you remember, how does Mirabai translate mortal sin? Does she use that term in her? Because she wouldn't. That's a, good, that's a good question. She wouldn't have know. come to that. Uh, by her pro her Jewish Protestant background, yeah. and she knows the Spanish, so she would have known. And she know, yeah. She, uh -huh. So she's translating that, like, what's the essence for Teresa? What yeah. would be interesting? The word that she yeah. uses that would be. Yeah, I, I I should look that up. I'm just noticing um, she's using the word grave error in one place. If the soul were to fall into grave grave error. error. Well, maybe that maybe that's that works. It. That works. Yeah, no, that, maybe that's it. Grave error. Yeah. The the notion itself comes from the first letter of John. There is a, a sin unto death. He says, and mm -hmm. um, yeah. I think it's a chosen darkness, <clears throat> a deliberate unconsciousness, in our language, or grave error. No, that's good. 
I like Merton's insight, and he says in New Seeds of Contemplation, he says, all sin begins in the belief that our separate self is the foundation for our whole life. And we clothe this self, he says, which can't be real. And we clothe it like we wrap, like bandages, we wrap around trying to make ourselves look real in this illusionary separateness that can't exist. He calls that a life of sin, you know, and then how we act out that illusion. I I like that way of looking at it. Oh, I do too. My God, that man, if there's any notion that needs clarification, just start reading Merton and you'll find it eventually. Yeah. <laughs> How that's, that's, that's what some people say about Richard Rohr. <laughs> no, I don't think that. <laughs> Richard babbles on too much. <laughs> Um, well, Richard, I do. I think when I picked up Teresa, one of the reasons she resonated for me was the way you have um, drawn out uh, the, the necessary path of psychological wholeness and, and, and doing good psychological work, you know, as a Christian um, that was kind of seen as separate, even scary at times. Uh, and so I just wondered if you'd reflect on how you see Teresa doing that and, and how you came to that. You know, it's why you've heard me say in my most recent books how good theology does not build on bad psychology or bad anthropology. If you have a negative image of the human person or a faulty image of the human person, you can say all the glorious things you want about God, but the two of us don't know how to meet. Uh, there's, there's no common ground between God and the person. So uh, I admit my generation in the 60s and 70s and 80s was very psychological. Maybe sometimes it went too far, but I'm still convinced they've got to be kissing cousins. They've got to work together, or you can't present the spiritual journey in a way that's believable, credible, holdable. Uh, and yet uh, the the conservative right, it's that very thing that they hate you for very often. They'll call it new age or just mm-hmm. psychology or uh, almost as if they don't want the soul and the divine to be, you know, working together, mm-hmm. operating as one. Amazes me their fear of psychology. Because it isn't really psychology, it's just an understanding of this creature God has made in his image and likeness. If that's psychology, but it's already theology. Mm. That I and you and Jim and Corey, we're all theological statements in our very being. Wow. Yeah. Jim, what's your reflection on that? I'm thinking, I think it's Thomas Aquinas, um, this idea that grace builds on nature. I mean, everything is grace, but it's mediated through our nature in the psychological maturity. And if, if we've internalized distortions, the grace gets filtered through and distorted by those distortions. And so we're always trying to discern what those are and head into kind of more into a more luminous clarity, like more reality-based basis for understanding the mystery of our life and who we are. And I would, you know, I would see it along those lines. Mm-hmm. I think it's where depth psychology and the spiritual life touch each other. Yes. You know, and then in the depths of, and like AA too, sobriety and recovery. You know, the more you authentically and courageously go down into the depths of the hurting place, that's where you discover your invincible, like the, what Jesus called the pearl of great price. You discover the invincible preciousness of yourself that got buried under the rubble of all that confusion, and you find your way out again. And that's what makes the healing pro that humble, transformative process, such a holy place where it's in, inherently integrated like that. 
But when we mm. separate them, like here's this theological purity, and down here, here's this, and the two never meet each other. Mm. You know, it creates this dualism. Dualism. And our thinking, and that's the promise, splits off divinity from the divinity of the ordinariness of the human experience. Yep. And, uh, you don't know how to put the two together again. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. I love, Richard, the way you said we're already theological in our humanity, um, just just being here. And I think Teresa really speaks to that because psychology wasn't a thing back then, and yet no. she was so clear on clear, what it was yeah. to be a human being and what it was to grow in love. It's just amazing. You almost think it was an advantage that she was not educated as a cleric or as a male, you know? Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, when you really look at it, to the very genius of how she sets this up. See, so the soul is a word she's using for our God given, godly nature created yes. by God in the image and likeness yes. of God. So she starts there. Then the mansions are the. the ways in which or the degrees of which we interiorly are awakened to the mystery of that and respond to it. So the mansions are incremental degrees of awakening and responding to the God-given godly nature of the mystery of our own soul. And that's, so you see right away what you're talking about, Richard, is built right into how she starts building the whole basis for her teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just uh, have been reading uh, Matthew Fox's uh, new commentary on Julian of Norwich, who would have preceded Teresa by several centuries. And if he's translating Julian directly, I'm going to go back and reread her, but he has her saying the identical thing Teresa de- did. We must know God in oneself and we must know oneself in God. Yeah. Uh, that's amazing. If two uh, uh, comparatively uneducated women could come to such a profound theology, psychology, independently of one another, that's perennial tradition. Mm. That's wisdom. Yeah. That, that's God's psychology theology. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Purely given. Amazing. Uh, you know, and also, uh, Mictelda Magberg, you know, the Beguines. Mictel was an uneducated woman during this, uh, one of these mystics. And she has this lovely statement in the flowing light of the Godhead, where she says that. She says, God revealed to her that he's freely chose to be so hopelessly in love with her. He doesn't know if he could handle being God without her. Oh. And she says, take me home with you. I'll be your physician forever. Wow. Like, where, did, where does that come from? Where? Where? Uh, out of the heart of a person and Courage witness. Courage to talk it, that it, way. Just, uh, yes, exactly. It was such... Oh, it's, we it's, would have been told, this is presumption. <laughs> 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 we created words of sins. Pre- yeah. The sin of presumption. That you could be important to God. And that's the very message. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that. That was in the... Monastery, that, or in the, um, Catholic, the Franciscan lineage? Catholic vocabulary, Catholic? yeah. yeah. Wow. Presumption. presumption and despair were the, the two false paths, presuming you know, too I, much or despairing of God. And mm-hmm. Teresa is also very good, Richard. What do you think of this? Where this kind of boldness of seeing this God-given divinity of ourself in the seventh mansion that we're drawn towards, she says is also always simultaneously grounded in humility. That, that the, the door that moves through each mansion, humility, prayer, and self-knowledge. So she always grounds the boldness of God's love for us in our humble amazement of being so loved and responding to it. So she's completely free of presumption. You know, she's almost bearing witness to this infinite love that draws us so. And then other people misread her, and they tr- they turn it into presumption. Uh, it's, it's about him. Look yep. what I've experienced. Look what yep. I'm doing. Yep. And we, we confuse those two things. Yeah. There must have been something about her, though, because even under the Inquisition, she was able to convince them um, that this bold language and this 
was was actually true of God, and that seems quite amazing. She was very she was smart. Smart. She was very careful to stay under the radar. <laughs> so when she makes these self demeaning statements like "we women." We don't, I refer all of this to the Catholic Church. What she's doing is she's keeping herself under the radar. That's right. That's right. very carefully being bold, like Mm -hmm. courageously prudent, you know. And she's good at that. She's genius. It really Yeah. Before she's going to say something real bold, she reaffirms her (laughs) ignorance and her obedience to the Holy Catholic Church. (laughs) And then she shoots it at you. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's so helpful to hear that context because as a woman, you can read her and feel like, oh, she's she's not, she's very demeaning about herself and Mm -hmm. that's not great role modeling. But what I actually hear is she was very strategic, and sometimes she was. Um, being strategic isn't, yeah, it's amazing. She knows very, what very, she's doing, yeah. yeah. Yeah, in difficult circumstances, she was very strategic. There you go. Yeah. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, any, any last thoughts from Richard, Jim? Any last thoughts? I don't know where to land. Uh, the bigger things we already addressed, at least slightly. Uh, so I'm content, more than content. Mm. Uh, Richard, which mansion are you in? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. What, as Jim said, what a waste of time. To yeah. even want to answer that question is hubris. Uh, mm. yeah. How about you, Jim? Any closing Yeah, for me, it ties in with our conversation here. It's just um, like with her, you see this in in Augustine too, that the greatest evidence of God's love for us is our own life, you know, like the autobiographical foundations. Mm. So for me to come out of this trauma and brokenness and this arca ending up in a cloistered monastery, you know, ending up with Merton, ending up being grounded in that, ending up getting re-traumatized in the monastery, ending up coming out, getting regrounded in this again, and out of that writing Merton's Palace of Nowhere on the true self, and out of that as a high school religion teacher going on tour, giving silent retreats around the country, and then meeting Richard Rohr, and no. then moving on, and then being invited to the living school. The fact that we're sitting here like this, on this podcast of the mystics reaching all these people and Richard and I are sitting like two old friends swapping stories about how <laughs> grateful we are. And Absolutely. It, kind of, it amazes me. Yeah. We're exact contemporaries. Isn't that interesting? We yeah. saw the old church. We youthfully grew through the growing yeah. of the new church. Yeah. And we live now in this time of postmodern deconstruction of everything. Yeah. Uh, Grateful for what we were given. Yeah. But I also think, Richard, we talked about this before on another occasion, is I think just like God providentially used Merton to touch so many people, I think providentially isn't something you planned. You know, the role that you've played in kind of radically bearing witness to what the heart knows is true and such pastoral common sense ways you know that that you know what i mean like the like the brilliance of pastoral accessibility to the truth of all this must also kind of amaze you how god oh, used you oh. to kind of like uh, uh, go figure yeah <laughs> and there you are you're right in the middle of it and here we are it's kind of god amazing. largely hid it from me so i wouldn't take myself too seriously yeah yeah Thank you for inviting me into this wonderful conversation. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you both. God bless you both. God bless bless you. you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Center for Action and Contemplation. Please consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend who might be interested in learning and practicing with this online community. To learn more about the work of James Finley, please visit jamesfinley.org. We'll see you again soon.
Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.